what a passage. Uh, really, uh, uh, there are so many times this week when I've just sat at my, at my desk um, and kind of slumped back into my chair and just gone, wow, like 30 minutes I've gone. Um, you're saying, hurry up. Uh, you're telling us what your office is like. But really, the, this passage contains so many different aspects of, of truth that, that you would love to just camp on for a long time. Um, but yet we only have a short time. We are to be wowed by this wonderful passage from God's Word. Um, sometimes when I'm reading through a passage and I'm trying to discern what is, what is the big theme here, what are we supposed to be learning and taking from this, um, I, I, we try different methods, of course. We employ different tools, like context, for example. The book of Isaiah tells you, particularly between chapters 40 and 55, that idolatry is a seriously big issue. So in chapter 40, the great passage where we read of the comfort, comfort my people, we read God's indictment on the idols, even in that passage, as the idols are nothing, nothing, yet these are the, the things that my people put their hope and their trust in. They're nothing. And God always says, see, behold, the sovereign Lord comes with power. Even in chapter 41, we've just seen the very same thing. God has called the, the idols to account, really, into the courtroom. We saw that last week in Isaiah chapter 41. And demanded that they speak. Come on, raise your voices. You know, if you exist, prove your existence, declare somehow, tell us, just speak. Or else tell us something that's going to happen in the future. They can't do that. And God says, see, behold, verse 29, their delusion. I think what we see in light of the context is another attack on the idolatry of the people. Another way that I try and figure out exactly what's going on in the passage is to draw some pictures. And uh, this is what I doodled. Um, can you see that? What I want you to do is start at the very bottom. In Isaiah chapter 42, remember, we have Isaiah, the Lord addressing the Lord's people through the prophet Isaiah in their Babylonian captivity. Okay? In their Babylonian captivity, they are, they are people who are, according to chapter 42, blind. They are captive. They are in darkness. And what these people are doing is that they are looking over towards that rather fetching depiction of an idol over there. Those are eyes, by the way. Did you see that? Those are eyes. Um, the people are looking to idols for some kind of comfort and hope. One of the reasons why the people of God find themselves in captivity is because they've mixed the worship of God with idolatry. It seems that as they've gone into captivity, whether it's with the Assyrians, first of all, and the Babylonians, that they have continued in this. The, the, the gods of the other nations have become their gods, and it's, it's done more than dilute their worship. It's completely skewed it. Now, you might be wondering, what relevance does this have for me? Well, idolatry is not some ancient Near Eastern problem from hundreds of years ago. It's a very present issue for us. And while we might not be bowing down to statues made of wood, metal, or gold, whatever, uh, in shrines, we are captivated by idols in our day. John Calvin said, the heart is a factory of idols. 
that in our hearts we turn out God replacements one after the other, an idol being something more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything, according to Ken Sandy, you seek to give you what only God can give. So think about it. Think about your own life. When some worldly thing is more important to you than God's, you know that you're in the grip of an idol. When you're looking for happiness in something with a manufacturing label on it rather than God, you know you're captive to idolatry. When you prefer the lure of sin to the love of God, you know you're in the grip of an idol. And suddenly, the Bible's teaching in Isaiah on idolatry becomes all the more important to us. We realize how much we need to pay attention to it. The eyes of Israel have looked to idols. In chapter 1, verse 29, that's what we see. And they're in a mess because of their idolatry. In chapter 41, God has exposed the delusion of it. Look with me. See, behold, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but winds and confusion. There's nothing to it. And it serves you in no way. And yet, the futility that's evident in that passage. These people are looking to these things to guide them, to give them meaning, to give them satisfaction, to, to serve them in some way, and yet they are delivering absolutely nothing. That's why, as I said, in verses 21 to 29 of chapter 41, you have God summoning the idols to this judicial hearing. Come on then, bring proof. They're silent. Proving the delusion proving the deception, and that's what provides the context for moving into chapter 42. God has just said, look, behold, these idols are an absolute delusion. The, the things, even for us this day, money, sex, power, the materialism, even our children, even ourselves, we can place ourselves, set ourselves up as an idol. Delusional. They bring confusion. It's not the way worship is meant to be offered. So in chapter 42, verse 1, we hear this call to behold an alternative. Behold, verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold. They don't put the word behold in there, but it is there in the Hebrew. Behold, God wants us to direct our attention and our eyes not towards idols today, but towards someone else in particular, someone he calls a servant. And we'll see this in verses 1 to 9. Who is this servant? Behold, here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Who is the servant? Now, you need to be very careful as you read through the book of Isaiah because the word servant is given to different people at different times in the book. And whenever we come to this servant of whom there are four particular passages that point to, if you like, a capital S servant, the Lord Jesus himself, I'm giving it away, that we don't get a capital S in there. So Isaiah has already been applied, uh, been referred to here as the servant in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, the Lord said, My servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years, but it can't be him. It's a strange ministry. 
But Israel is also called God's servant. We saw that last week in chapter 41, even verses 8 to 9. But you, Israel, my servant. But it can't be Israel because this passage in chapter 42 reeks of their inability to save themselves. They are in darkness. How are they, the ones in darkness, then going to bring light to the Gentiles? Ah, well, maybe it's the Babylonian king Cyrus then. We've heard about him. And it's true that even he, this foreign king, has been called God's servant, but it's not him either. What we do know to help us identify who this servant is, is that this servant is one who is a chosen agent for all that God will do, my chosen one, in whom I delight. This servant, in contrast with the idols, in contrast with Israel in their sin and their idolatry, even in contrast with the pagan king. This servant is a delight, absolute joy, brings joy to God. And the servant will be filled with the Spirit. And all of these little hints point us forward, of course, to the Lord Jesus. And, well, really, if you want any greater confirmation that this is the Lord Jesus we're talking about, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, where in verses 15 to 21, Matthew takes this passage, speaking of this servant in Isaiah 42, and says in no uncertain terms that it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read aware of this so that this is the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day are seeking to kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So here, this is what was spoken to fulfill through the prophet Isaiah, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So we know through the lens of Matthew's writing that this is indeed the Lord Jesus that we're talking about. And it fits. It makes perfect sense for us. When you consider not, who, not only who this servant is, but what this servant is doing. Look with me at the end of verse 1. Actually, you see it three times in verses 1 to 4. One of the main things that's happening through this servant is that he's bringing justice. He's bringing justice. And justice not only to Israel in captivity but to the nations. He's bringing justice on a global scale. Now, the Hebrew word for justice here is a fairly versatile word, actually. It speaks of one who comes and brings a a divine pronouncement, but it also speaks of, if you like, bringing the right order to something, rearranging the disarranged, or bringing disorder to order, putting wrongs to right. So there's a sense of the authority behind the justice being pronounced and actually what is achieved through bringing about that justice. Now, isn't that the kind of person that this world needs? You know, when a man drives a truck through a festival, people cry out for justice and hope for a better world, don't they? When a nation suddenly descends into, a, into coup-induced chaos, when 
helicopter gunships fly over the street you walked down only 30 minutes before, you, you cry out for a better world, right? When people are trafficked, abused, when civilians are oppressed, babies aborted, defendants unjustly tried, people enslaved, we cry out for a better world, don't we? And when relationships break down and children grow up in two homes or broken homes, when poverty strangles some and riches fatten another, we, we cry out for a better world, right? The problem with this world, the problem in us, is that we look in all the wrong places for the solution. People count on governments to make things right, so political ideology is their solution to the problem, but all it takes is an expenses scandal, or a Brexit, or even watching Prime Minister's question times on TV, and hope just deflates. We're hoping for a better world, but we're looking in the wrong place. Some put their hope in politics, others put their hope in labels. You know, materialism is the solution. Anesthetize oneself to the discomfort of our world by plumping up the cushions of our own lifestyle and all will be well, we'll say. But anything apart from, but anything like an expensive car bill to redundancy, and again, that hope deflates. We're hoping for a better world, but looking in the wrong place. The justice that's talked about here is something that captures all of our longings for a better life and a better world. A world with no corrupting idolatries and at the same time deals with the very injustice that is found in us. For we're all guilty in some form of breaking God's law of not living as we ought. God is the one who has created this whole world. We're accountable to him. He exists and has demonstrated that through the world that he has made and the word that he has given us. And he has demonstrated his existence namely through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As he himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And yet we, in our sinfulness, have defied him. We have rebelled against his authority. We have not kept his words. We've sought to live our own way, thus making ourselves to be idols. And brought about what would have brought his just condemnation on us. But in love, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this servant to be the one who would satisfy God's just judgment on a sinful world. And as he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin in our place. So that people who turn away from their sin and their idolatry and turn to him in faith will find forgiveness. Have you done that, brothers and sisters? Friends, if you're here today visiting with us, if you're not a Christian, 
we're really glad that you're here and you're very, very welcome. Uh, did you know that this was the case, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard? God calls on us to look to Jesus, his servant, and see that forgiveness and salvation is possible through him. That the judgment that we justly deserve from him has been averted from us and paid by Christ if you believe in him. That's why God says, Behold my servant, see my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. Look to him and you will find the justice that you're looking for. Not only justice to find forgiveness for your sins and a right standing with God, but yes, a future to come, as Isaiah will talk about later, the hope of a better life, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, we hope, and we long for a better world. This servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one, the only one who's going to bring it about. He's the chosen one, the one that God delights in, the one and whom he puts his spirit, but how exactly is he going to bring about this justice? How is he going to put things right? How is he going to rearrange the disarranged on a personal and a global scale? Well, with gentleness, surprisingly. With gentleness. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 in particular. You have five negatives written here. He won't shout out. He won't cry out. He's not really a rabble rouser who's going to really try and get people's attention. He's not going to stand up and say on his soapbox and stay, say necessarily you know, provocative things just for the sake of it. He's no Trump. Even though he was the highest authority in the universe, he spoke with dignity and control. He used no means of persuasion but the truth. He didn't arrange a mob, even when you think about it. Uh, when, when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the guard, the temple guard approached and Peter drew the sword and lopped off the servant's ear, the soldier's ear, Jesus rebuked him and said, don't. He's not a rabble rouser. He's not going to trample people, not the way Cyrus did. trampling people like they were clay. But then we read on that he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. But verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, this is an incredible depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. He won't break a bruised reed. Picture a bouquet of flowers. Imagine you open up a bouquet of flowers, you've got the vase ready, the water out, that little sachet of stuff. I normally throw that out. I think you're supposed to put it in the water. But you picture this bouquet of flowers, you open it up, and there you go, one is broken, quite near the head of the flower as well. What do you do with that flower? Well, you throw it out. The picture is of something that is really useless, but not him. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't break something that looks like it can't be fixed. And he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. Picture a candle, one of those, even one of those smelly Yankee candle things. The flame has gone out. The wick is red with heat. And what does it do? It's not a flame. It's not, a, it's not giving off a lovely little glow, is it? No, it's, it's smoking, actually. It's fairly yucky. 
Everyone else, what do you do? You kind of, there are children here, so I'm not going to say what I would normally do. Uh, um, you'd normally give up, you know, let him put it out. But not Jesus. With those who are, as it were, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, broken people whose lives have been disarranged by idolatry, broken by sin, people who you might expect to have been a, a bonfire for the Lord in some respects, but who are just with doubt or in their struggle with sin are smoldering. They seem broken. They are people that the, the, the world might routinely discard, not Jesus. Jesus is gentle. He demonstrates that again in Matthew chapter 12, where this passage is referenced in his care for people. Not only does he not kick up a stink with the leaders who are trying to kill him in that time, he's healing people and he's telling them not to tell anyone because he's not trying to raise a rabble. He's doing the Lord's work in a manner that's fitting of the servant. The bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks of this world are the people who could be easily discarded. I wonder if that describes you today. Maybe emotionally vulnerable, frail emotionally, struggling with doubt. You maybe feel like your struggle with sin has been so lengthy that you wonder what your standing is with the Lord. Well, there is good news for you today in the love of Jesus, the suffering servant. This servant who cares for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. He's the one who gives suffering people their lives back. He's the one who brings the transforming truth of the gospel to bear in the lives of people who are steeped in idolatry. The idols that you look to will chew you up and spit you out. But when you turn to the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, he treats you so tenderly, so tenderly. Do you not sense that? As you're conscious of your sinfulness before him, how gracious is he? Like how gracious is our God. So what should we do in view of a servant like this? The one who, who will not falter or fail. Actually, the words falter or discouraged in here are the same words that are used for bruised and smoldering. He's not one who is bruised or smoldering. In other words, he's not going to fail. He's not going to whimper out until he has achieved the purpose for which the Lord God sent him out. That is to be a light for the Gentiles, a covenant for his people, a promise, someone that we can trust in for salvation. No, he will not falter or be discouraged, verse 4, till he establishes this justice on earth, reorder the disordered, rearranged, the disarranged. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. In his teaching. The application for us in this first little section of verses 1 to 4, of course, is that we trust in him. We take his word to be true. 
We take him at his word and we put it into practice. We rely on the gospel that he declared. A gospel of grace for sinners like us. A promise for his church that he will build it as this word is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And the promise that one day he's coming back to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the call of this passage is to put your trust in him. He is the hope of the world. In his teaching, the islands or the nations will put their hope. And that's the encouragement for you. Put your hope and trust in him. Take everything you've got in your life, all the things that you think that you can rely on to keep you afloat and sustain you, none of these things bring you through judgment. But bank everything on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him for his promise that he will receive you when you come to him. Forgive you when you repent. When you believe in his name, you'll be saved. Come to him today. You can talk to me about that afterwards. I'd love to chat with you. I'll be at the door afterwards or ask any of the stewards here. We'd love to chat with you about that. Put your trust in him as the nations do. Brothers and sisters, of course, God is showing us that he can break our attachments to idols when we look to him. That's why he's saying this to his people. Those sins that you struggle with, the desires that you wrestle with, the materialism, the lust, even the yearning for personal attention, all the things that seem to signify that your heart is a factory of idols, your attachment to these things can be broken as you look to Jesus and apply the truth of the gospel to our daily lives. He's so gracious to us. And what is he doing in verses 5 to 9? What is one of the purposes of sending this servant to come and do this work? Why is God delighting in him such? What is he achieving by sending this servant? Well, he is making his servant this light to the Gentiles. That in itself is absolutely phenomenal. That God is just not set on saving and rescuing the people of his choosing, Israel. But this, this rescue, this, this rescue in their captivity is for the nations it's for everyone and his intent is to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from dungeon those who sit in darkness it's describing mainly the spiritual condition and in doing so this is how he glorifies his name Look at verse 8. I am the Lord and that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or give my praise to idols. So can we have the image back on screen? The people in captivity have been looking to their idols. If you look at the top, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit says of those idols, I will not give my glory to those idols. He will not permit it. So what will he do? He sends his servant so that through the salvation that comes from him, the nations will give glory to the Lord. That's what we see further down in verse 12. Let them give glory to the Lord and praise him in the islands. Praise him across the whole world. He sent his servant to bring glory. God's glory is, of course, his highest pursuits. It doesn't make him egotistical. He's the only person in the universe for which such a pursuit is not egotistical. But he works here 
so passionately to maintain his glory so that more and more people might see the idols for what they are and his salvation for what it is. He will not yield. He will not give glory to idols. He will not roll over and let created things receive the praise that's due to him. That's why he sends his servant, to bring glory to his name. And that's why we see in our second point that the people of God, not only should we look to the servant, but we should sing to God. Look with me, verses 10 to 17. Here is the right response to the revelation of God of the, about this servant. This is the right response. God is doing something so wonderful and so beyond the bounds of expectation that actually what is said in verse 10 is that we need a whole new song for this. Get your pens and paper out, everyone. You know, everybody get stand up, get ready to sing. In fact, we don't even have a song to sing because this is so unbelievably wonderful. We need a whole new song for this. We need a new song that will capture the grace of this, this mighty God whom the nations have defied, who sends this gentle servant to do his mighty work. We need a new song. It's beautiful to see. And who's going to sing this song? Well, it's everyone, everywhere. Look with me at verses, uh, the second part of verse 10 and into 11. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that's in it. You islands and all who live in them. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices in the settlements of Kedar. That's the desert. Um, that's the wilderness. Uh, in the settlement where Kedar lives, rejoice. Let the people of Selah, that's the mountain people, sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountain tops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim, pro proclaim, that's a new word, proclaim his praise in the islands. Do you see this? Everybody, whether you're at the lowest point of altitude, whether you're at sea level, or whether you're at 50,000 feet. I don't think there's a place at 50,000. Maybe there is, anyway. Whatever level you're at, whether you're in a desert or whether you're surrounded by sea, let everybody who hears of this servant praise the Lord. So great is his salvation. So wonderful is his blind eye opening and dark captive freeing work that the whole earth ought to stand up and sing a new song of praise to the God who loves us and deals with us with such gentleness. Let us give glory to him. He wants everyone to see how glorious this achievement will be. In verses 13 to 16, God says that this, if you like, the emancipation of these idolaters, people who are just so steeped in their worship of self or other things, their freedom will be won with a great determination, as he says, like a soldier getting himself ready to fight, with great effort, like a woman in labor. And it will be achieved with great success. 
He says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light and make rough places smooth. He is going to make it as easy as possible for us. How? Because he sent his son, the servant, to do all the hard work, to live the life of sinless perfection, to die that substitutionary death on the cross so that we who believe in him might have life in his name. He is the one who, even to those who struggle in their sinful idolatry, who feel like the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. He is the one who makes life that seems so rough smooth. He's the one who, when we don't know the way, calls us to trust him and shows us the way. And he says, these, so these for idolaters, these are the things that I will do. I'll not forsake them, he says. In verse 16, I will not forsake them. How gracious. So, what is the application? Well, in verses 1 to 9, the application was, look, behold the servant in his glory, in his meekness, so that we might worship God who will not give his praise to idols. And secondly, Sing to him. Sing praise to him. If you were to stand up right now and just burst into song, I'd have no justification for stopping you. Because God, as we see in this passage, is worthy of our praise. Yet there is a warning to end with. Even as, I, as, as Isaiah continues... We'll see in the following weeks how there are going to be further revelations of who this servant is, of his activity, and with increasing clarity to bring to bear not only God's judgment on idolatry and all sin, but on the wonders of the salvation that he's going to make available to those who will trust in him. But the warning for us says in verse 17 that those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, they will be turned back in utter shame. There will be no smooth road to walk. There will be no hand to put your hand in. And I wonder if you're here today and you're not a Christian. If you haven't trusted Christ for salvation, the Bible, the Bible is really clear. It's very honest. I hope you'll agree with that. that actually if we don't put our hand in his through faith in Jesus, then we will be turned back in shame. We will not be received by him and we'll have no hope for a better world. No solution to the idols of our hearts. And my encouragement for you is to see that all who trust in idols, who say to images, you're our gods, that they will be turned back in utter shame. 
but the Lord graciously now extends his offer of forgiveness that when we turn to him in faith, we find one not frowning over us in disapproval, but with arms open wide in welcoming grace when we come in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave here today without talking to someone about this. Or in the quietness, pray to him. Just talk to God and confess your sin before him. What a wonderful Lord God that we have. So gracious in his work. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together.